After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Here we are, David Silver and Raghu Marcus. We are back, and uh, I'm in my new. I'm in my new ensconcements. <laughs> That's a word. I'm out here in California. All of a sudden, I'm like looking around. Where am I? This is crazy. Um, and and David looked at you know the background. If you look at the video, guys, you can see the background of where I am now in the room that I'm in, I said, this could be a safe house in Lebanon. It, it's so nondescript. It just, I don't know. Well, it fits in with one of the themes, hopefully, of this. Oh, hello, everybody, by the way. I, yeah, say hi to everybody, Dave. Hello, it's Dave. great to be um, on the Be Here Now Network. And I'm mind, mind rolling. I'm, I'm very pleased. And uh, it's rather late. We're doing it later in the day because it's cooler here in New York City. Yeah. And um, I, I've been reading one thing. Rog has been reading another few things. And we're just going to sort of throw them out and and converse. But meanwhile, how how are you? I'm, I'm good. Uh, I'm very well, actually. I'm, I can't believe I'm saying that, but I am. Really? Uh-huh. I feel good. Um, well, it's been a while, everybody. So we're just kind of catching up uh, all together. Right? Yeah. I'm good, and I'm, you know, uh, today because of this podcast, I've been right with cognizant emptiness, Dharmakaya, and uh, because of a book, which we can relate to. Wait, cognizant emptiness. Wait, you jump right into the middle of something. Yeah, I thought like, we should do that shit. instead of talking about you know sports. <laughs> It was I a deliberate ploy. I thought we'd talk about Wimbledon, you know? just Wimbledon, yeah. I've been um, watching, since I was six, I've been watching Wimbledon. And that's one of the things I have to now detach myself <laughs> from in order to achieve cognizant emptiness. I see. It's here. Uh, it's called Wait, The Body Guidebook, and it's by Chyoki Nyuma Rinpoche, brother of Minjur and two other brothers, and son of Tulkun, Tulku Urgen Rinpoche. And as I said to Raghu a little while ago, and he seemed to like this phrase, I, um, in a very vulgar way, called them the Kardashians of the Zogchen Masters. <laughs> oh, God, if any of them ever hear this. <laughs> yeah, I'm dead. Yeah. Just, yeah, Dave said that, not me. And uh, 
but no, I mean it very in a, in a nice way, in the sense that you just can't believe this family. I mean, no. I don't really follow the Kardashians, but I know there's like a hundred of them, all fashion models. But to be serious for a minute, the, um, the lineage, not just of Tolkien or Orgen, but of his father, is uh, a very amazing one. And to have these four kids, which he did, um, Choki's about mid-60s, Minjur is 46, I think, at this time. He's the youngest one. And there are two others. And they've all done amazing books and given incredible tools. Yeah, Mingjur Rinpoche being one of them, who's been on Mind Rolling recently, with uh, actually with Krishnadas and I. And it's an ex- really extraordinary family. I mean, each one of them, and you're going to hear s- stuff today we're going to refer to from each one of them. They have such valuable offerings to all of us to be able to navigate uh, a life in balance as we call it here um but uh, and and the father but we sh- i've recommended this book before it must be this is like at least six times so everybody out there toku urgian's memoir what's it called dave i i, I don't brilliant I don't, I is just it? know the as it is series there are two of them. Uh-huh. Also, as it is. But his memoir is the easiest way to get into him. Yeah, it's, I've forgotten the name of it. Yeah, Brilliant something. You, you'll see a memoir. Just go up. Yeah, Brilliant Awareness. Yes, Awareness. I no, blazing, blazing. Blazing. It's Blazing yeah, yeah. something. <laughs> blazing Brilliant is what yeah, it is. Yeah. If I were to turn around and go over there, I'd find it. But yeah. Yeah, that is, yeah, but uh, just extraordinary. And, and the sons are... and. Uh, uh, but yeah, talk about this because I don't know this Bardo book. Well, it's you know somewhat. Oh, well, let's talk about what the hell a Bardo is. Let's start there. Okay, Never well, mind I can get to that. that. Uh, but before I do that, it's a lot of it is based on something called the Mirror of Mindfulness, which is a great tract, Buddhist tract. But it's it's redone because really it's Choki uh, doing a few talks, and then they transcribe it very faithfully. And the Bardos, as I remember them, are. Uh, there are four main ones, which is the body of natural life, which is what we're in now, that you're watching. You were watching. You're in natural life. Rago and I are in natural life. And then the body of the act of dying, which gets its own body. And then the body of um, whatever you go to, uh, you know, is the, the body after passing. And in sort of post-hippie 60s, 70s parlance, it was always thought of the body was post-passing, nothing to do with this, but that's not true. And Chilke reminds you 20 times in the book that this life, this body, the body of a natural life is the most important one because it's the motivator and the um, former, the creator of the rest of them. In other words, how you live your life and how you practice and your involvement with meditation uh, will affect obviously the way you die and how you experience the immediate post-death bardo, which can be everything from hallucinations of great terror to uh, to opposite hallucinations of pure lands and beauty and landscapes and music and 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 so on. Uh, and then he describes in this very much what happens after that. Uh, and then there's two bardos within life. They're not minor bardos, but they're, they're within the our life, this life which is the bardo of dreaming and the bardo of meditating. Uh, But because Chokhi and his lineage believe that dreaming and meditating are part of the karmic manifestations of this life, 
then they're within the bardo of Islam, not some separate bardo. Uh, so really, this book is a is a, a way of living with the knowledge that it's totally totally impermanent, that everything is going to disappear, and the way we live and the way we practice will determine how we're able to deal with the most important passage we're ever going to have, which is that from being in this body with these five senses and next one after we die. Hey, you know... Um, That's what it is, a guidebook to that, if you can yeah. believe. <laughs> uh, I found something from his brother. I thought, we've got to get everybody involved here. Uh, around Bardo, uh, and this is Minjur Rinpoche, Bardo can be understood to mean, quote-unquote, this very moment. Uh-huh. Isn't that something? The nowness of this moment is yeah. the continual suspension or pause in between our trans- transitory experience. So it's the pause, both temporal and spatial, such mm-hmm. as the tiny halt that exists between this breath and the next. Mm-hmm. Yes. Or the arising and fading of this thought and the next, right? The interval can all be also be experienced as the in-between of two objects, the gap between two trees or two cars, the space that provides definition. Or we can understand this internal, this interval rather, as the emptiness that allows us to see form. Actually, everything is in-between. However minuscule the interval might be, it always exists and it is always bracketed. Everything in the whole world system exists in between something else. From this perspective, the exclusive reference of intermediate to the state between death and rebirth emerges as the prototype for transitions that occur within this life cycle. The Bardo stages then illuminate how these iconic death-to-life transition transitions emerge in everyday experience, which is exactly what you were just reading from his brother. Yeah, I mean, it, it's um, the book is describes it, but I mean, really, what the book is about is how to not waste time in your life once you know that this is actually a construct that you can believe in, and once you have faith in that. I mean, he also says that too much intellectual preoccupation with that will um, dissipate the faith. So it's not a question of intellectual comprehension. It's a question of both meditation and, of course, right action. Because he says that the cognizant emptiness does not preclude right action within this illusory bio, if you like. Okay, we've got to ask, what, what's cognizant emptiness? We've got to get well, it's what it's what Cog- being aware, it's, cognizant. The kayas from... Dharmakaya to Nimanakaya via Sambhokakaya. And what that means is that you're gradually, if you're practiced, you're able to drop this life, like your body is being dropped, and and move on. And ultimately, you would not be attached to anything, including this discussion, uh, and and would reach what, what he calls ground luminosity, which is in this guidebook, uh, the combination of awarenesses that you train yourself to watch out for, either in the process of dying or immediately after the last breath. And and so those processes are practiced in order to go through, first of all, uh, a sort of calmness, which can accept what are essentially hallucinations, uh, either bad or good. 
to go through them with a, a, a practiced, uh, still grounding, if you like. And then, Detachment. Yes, exactly. And then move into another stage, which is that of, by many minor stages, which is the kaya of cognizance and emptiness, meaning that you're actually becoming the, lumina the luminous, not empty, but luminous, which is another word for cognizant in a way, the awareness of it all. Now, of course, that's a big ask. So we know the people of, of the stature of these, of these lamas and teachers and tulkus uh, allows them to know this because they experience it in this life because their meditation is so intense, they can penetrate these stages of, of passing, which the rest of us block out fanatically yeah. our yeah. whole life. They, every single day, are concentrating on what they will do when they go into what could be this. Yeah, you could. Yeah. And further, I'll just finish. He does yeah, say sorry. that cognizant emptiness does not preclude right action in this life because the karma and interconnectedness of this, be it maya, be it, you know, not the ultimate, it will affect your transition into the detached bardo and then the visionary bardo. And, and of course, it will help other people who you come to contact with the way you practice right action. Yeah, uh, and the emptiness part, we should certainly characterize yeah. that. And, and what, I mean, the most simple way to say it is non-attachment to that self that we con constantly reference on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, and But it's not just empty of that attachment. As Bob Thurman puts it, it is bliss state. So emptiness is, um, he calls it a womb-like bliss state that has no subject-object. So it's n you're no longer working from mini-me, your, your vantage point, is from what he's calling cognizant emptiness, which means that, you know, you're obviously way advanced now to the point where you're not caught in attachment. And, um, and but the most important thing here is, to me, learning this stuff is to apply it to where we are right now, where... Uh, some of us may be in transition or close to it or sick or and certainly you know thinking along taking these uh, these advisals in at that level of course is really important but one needs to start that way earlier in life so as you said i think one of the words you use was practiced there has to be that practiced um experience on a day-to-day -day basis to even think that you can get unglued from these attachments, right? I mean, so, uh, and like you say, it's a big ask here for for these kind of, of folks who've, uh, or at least the uh, Tuku Urgian family, I mean, the, the, the karma is involved, lifetimes of this kind of work is involved. And uh, I mean, Mingjur Rinpoche, as you guys, if, if you've watched him on mind rolling or, or, or listened to that episode a few episodes a few weeks ago i mean he left his monastery he was the abbot of several monasteries in fact he was treated like a king on a day-to-day -day basis right. and he just went okay this got to stop i want to relate with true nature without 
all of these uh, accoutrements. And he went A-W-O-L over the wall for four and a half years. And with, he had a few rupees, which, you know, he spent right away. And the book, uh, by the way, and I have to mention this, and, and again, this is highly repetitive. Uh, and it's the only way, and this is me, it's the only way this shit seems to sink in <laughs> by repeatedly going back to it. So uh, you have to excuse me for the repetition on one hand. On the other hand, I think it's good for all of us. This book is in love with the world. Uh, I have not uh, studied a book uh, in a long time the way I am studying this book because there's so much in it. That passage I just read about the bardo, that meaning this very moment, that's from his book as well. So uh, practiced is a, an important word with this, uh, with even approaching the idea of, of what a bardo is. Yeah, and, in, and Chucky, it's funny, we're talking about Tulku and Chucky and Major, and these are all the same DNA. Um, Chucky said, you know, they, they sort of don't mince words when they talk about the lack of practice and what might happen to you. And I wanted to read a little, just a little quote, in the body of becoming the 80, 80, innate thought states commence again. One starts to think, where can I take birth? And begins to search, experiencing immense suffering and worry. If one is going to be born in the three lower realms, one's head will not be facing up, will be facing down. In other words, like an insect. <laughs> Downwards due to the power of karma. If one is going to be born in one of the three higher realms, then one will walk upright, one's head held up. And in concert with that, he also says that his father and others recommended to him that when they know they're dying, uh, they should sit up. Mm. It's at all possible. Obviously, it's not possible for everyone. But if it is possible to sit up as you would be meditating, and then you won't be distracted and will be able to go to that place that you glimpsed over lifetimes and maybe in this lifetime. It's like when you meditate, sometimes you really do go somewhere and it, you catch yourself, you know, and you go, oh, I was there. But by the time you said that, you're not there. And that's the difference between, say, me and, and Chokey and Chokey, because they're doing it every time. They're not, you know, watching CNN or, or um, you know, so on. They're, they're only doing this. And they're still wonderful, amazing, warm, humorous people. But they say, you know, if you want to get into this game, you got to pay. You really got to get your A game. So here's what I'd be doing. What I'd be you? watching Wimbledon, but I'd have a big sign over the television: "Sit up." <laughs> <laughs> no, really, but I mean, he wouldn't mind that because one of the things that Choki says and and, and Mincher says it too. They all say the real, you know, McCoy. They say learning, you know, the three this and the four that and the eight this and the eighty-four thousand that. It, it, it can kill people. It's like, I can't do that. I can't remember all this stuff. He says, that's not important. What's important is just to practice simple meditation over and over and over again. So by the time this comes at you, uh, you may be surprised, but you'll quickly get into it because you'll recognize. You'll recognize, oh my God, I remember what I read in that book and I remember what happened to me in some meditation. Like for instance, he talks about, as I saw it, I, as I remember it, um, there's, there, there are red and white uh, kind of forces that the red one represents your mother, the white one represents your father. And at the time of death, just like at the time of birth, they join. 
And you go, if you practice like they have, you'll see them. You'll actually see a red thing coming up from six inches below your navel and a white thing coming from the top of your head and joining at the heart chakra. And when that happens, you know it's time to practice uh, everything you've learned about receiving the next part of It's time to sit up. I mean, this is a guidebook. I mean, you know, it's not like a guidebook to cooking or to how to mend your motorcycle or even how to become the best uh, meditator and mindfulness, you know, macker in, in America. It's nothing to do with that. Mindfulness macker. I like that. There's a yeah. lot of them. Oh my! There are 10 million now in America. 10 million mindful people walking around. We no, need just, another 40. I really made it up. Yeah. I don't know how many there are. Yeah, no, there's a lot. There's a lot. It's all over the place. Yeah. yeah. Um, so <laughs> you also, as, as something else of, of interest, and well, I want to continue along this line because we're, uh, one thing that bugs me is that when we talk about stuff that we kind of half know what the hell we're talking about and we don't really go through it. And I want to go back to the emptiness thing, which we have talked about a lot. Um, and, and it relates to this uh, film, Becoming Nobody, that we're the, the Ramdas film that's going to come out uh, September 2019, which is in a couple of months. And, and a lot of people are going, well, Becoming Nobody? What does it mean? You know, we're not, no, we, we're a somebody. We, you know, we're, we're podcasters, you and I. Right now, we are podcasters. Mm. That's, not, that's not a nobody, it's a somebody. So um, in this film, there's one really uh, marvelous uh, little section from Ramdas that really says what it is. He says, when you can make yourself into zero, then your power is unbelievable. You are an irresistible force where there's no high, no low, no judgments, no opinions, no good, no bad. You are merely part of it. And then by the very nature of things, you are the commandments. You are the precepts. You are the morality. You don't do it because you ought to do it. You are that which cannot hurt another human being. You just are. You literally die into service. You die into the plane of reality where you see that a starving person, a dying person, a hungry person or a frightened person is you. It's not her or him or them. You die in your separateness. The whole trip of what's good for me, what do I want? What do I need? What do I want? Just becomes less interesting. And the minute that becomes surrendered, just given up, it falls away. It falls away from this deeper wisdom. And then you merely become an instrument of the flow of the universe. You become part of the Tao, part of the way of things. And the serving and that which is served is all part of it. It's all part of it. At that moment, there's no coming down or going up. It just is. That to me is is the finest explanation, explication of the reality of emptiness and what happens in that moment. And when that that surrender just happens, since what you know, what we've called the surrender that's no surrender. Like the thing of meeting Neem Karoli Baba, people go, Oh, you surrendered, it's bhakti yoga. No one ever thought for a second there was there wasn't any subject object. It was like, 
tuning in and namaste to the deepest part of yourself, right? Which was no different. You could, you knew that that what he represented was inside you. And so there's no surrender. So there, there, this, um, this idea of becoming nobody related to emptiness is, I think, a really important, uh, important thing to understand. Yeah, I have two very different little anecdotes to talk about that. One is that just from last night, I was watching the local news for the weather. And they reported on the fact that three NYPD officers were called to a Whole Foods last night because they caught uh, someone shoplifting. So they went and it was a woman, a middle-aged woman who'd taken a bunch of very basic foods, clearly to cook. And the three cops looked at each other and said, no way are we gonna, no way. And they cuffed up the money, it was about $40, I think. And they paid the Whole Foods and, and told the management they would not make any charges. And they would continue to work on to make sure she was okay. Later they interviewed them and these cops, when asked, why did you do this? It's so strange. They said, it's not strange. What else could we do? What else could we do? Arrest this poor woman who was starving and probably had children, and then she'd be in jail? No, by the way, we've done this a lot. And I saw it and it almost made me cry because they were so sincere, these guys. They were young guys. They were like in their late, mid, late 20s, I think. It was quite, quite, quite beautiful. Wow. And, and it doesn't exactly relate to what we're talking about, but it doesn't. No, it totally relates. They went empty at the moment. They were not cops. And they said that. They were just like the sons of this woman, maybe. You know, it felt like that. But what was most amazing was they, they didn't take any credit for it. They said, what else could we? I don't understand how. Yeah. We're right. not heroes. We just couldn't watch this woman be arrested. You know. The other thing that. Well, compassion, can I just say that's yeah, yeah. when we talk about emptiness, yeah. it's, it's full of compassion, love and compassion. That's what, that's what emptiness really is, aside from the, the, the um, letting go of the identity stuff, the ego identity, aside from self-cherishing and self-interest and self-referential stuff. So it's full of what these guys just displayed. It's a perfect example. It is, and if you've actually seen the video, which you may see virally somewhere, I'm sure you'll, you'll see the look in their in their eyes, which is which is one of extraordinary compassion and gentleness. You know, New York City. Mm. Wow. The other thing was how bodhisattvas, or at least somebody you can say has something of that in them, will work sometimes. Uh, this is a real uh, Dave story. This one. Um, in 1997, I guess it was like, uh, we did that with Alan Ginsberg and Paul McCartney called Ballad of the Skeletons. And um, I got very close to Alan because he lives in New York and I didn't, we started to see each other a lot. And it was great. And then one time we flew together to Minneapolis. Uh, I was further flying to San Francisco. He was going to give a reading in Minneapolis. And we were sitting in a, a little cafe, you know, as an airport. And he asked me, is there anything that you really um, want to ask me? <laughs> and we were kind of chumming, you know, so it was sort of weird. And I said, no, not really. He said, no, what worries you? I said, oh, death. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, do you think people in this country 
share that? I said, I don't know. I, I, I know that most people are scared of death and they don't talk about it. Okay, cut to the day before he died. And he was in bed on the Lower East Side with some people came to see him like Patti Smith and there were llamas, but at this moment they weren't there. And he called me and Danny actually, separately. And when he got on the phone with me, he said, hi, this is Alan. And I, I didn't know he was so ill. I knew he'd been suffering a little. I said, oh, hi, nice to hear you. And he said, um, listen, I'm close to the end. Uh, it's gonna be in the next day or two, they're telling me. And um, I remember our conversation in, 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 in Minneapolis. And um, let me just tell you something. When I close my eyes now, instead of it being gray or dark pink, it's blue. And I'm beginning to feel the beginnings of um, of the emptiness, and and it sort of feels great. I, I I know I don't have long, and I know I'm seeing things I didn't see ten minutes ago. So I just wanted you to know that. Thank you for putting me together with Paul McCartney, and uh, I love you, and we won't be talking anymore. And this was just sixteen hours before he died, and I remember being a, a over, overwhelmed because I really liked Alan. He was a lovely person, mm. fantastic, yeah. but also. It was just the compassion. But in that moment, virtually hours before he passed, he remembered that this person who'd come into his life a, a couple of years before had said, I, I'm kind of afraid of dying. And he remembered that when he was dying and called me to tell me, and he said it, he didn't say it was reassuring. He was reassuring. And I got off the phone and um, the rest of my week actually was, was impacted. I was just, the rest of my life. But that week, I couldn't get that mo that voice on the telephone out of my head. Not because he made me feel better about dying particularly, but just the beauty of it, just the absolute selflessness of it. Mm. That moment. I don't even know him a couple of years. I didn't know him for 50 years or something. I wasn't yeah. a close friend of his. Yeah. But yeah. we'd had a, a nice experience together. And um, how wonderful it was. And I, I began to be a little more aware of what it means to pass stuff on. Mm. Mm. But these two stories, Dave. I know. If they don't, I mean, they perfectly exemplify everything we've been talking about. They exemplify. Plus, you allow me on the mind rolling. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Uh, no, they're beautiful. They're really beautiful. They, they really fill me with, with a great deal of humility, actually. Yeah. Well, what grace. Yeah. you know to have that happen yes yes um which reminds me i just saw alan in the in the uh in the dylan movie the scorsese oh. you know rolling thunder yeah now uh, just everybody out there so uh, just a little background this is a sideways from where we <laughs> what we've been talking about but um i have told this uh, actually i was on somebody else's podcast this morning and i was mentioning he was asking me how I came to all of this, and I was saying how miserable I was as a teenager in my mid-late teens. It was terrible. But then Dylan came along, and I was it was beautiful because someone was expressing what I was feeling. You know, this, this was just phenomenal. I thought, okay, I'm not alone. So that was, that was a wonderful thing. But later on, Dylan, who's maybe, you know, a bit, shall we say, curmudgeon-y. Uh, and he got into kind of different expressions of his music, and I happened to catch a bad one in, in 
at one point, which was uh, mid late seventies, where he decided to act like Elvis, and he had a big Vegas belt buckle. You remember that? Thing? I was in the garden. He ruined my whole childhood, my whole teenagehood, in one fell swoop. Okay, done. And from then on, I could, I just, I mean, there were some great, great records, Blood on the Tracks, and all that stuff. But uh, gradually, but inevitably. I lost touch with him, and I always had a thing up my ass about, he ruined it, I, my whole team. Of course, I totally disagree with this. Yeah, so Dave and I have had be, been having this dialectic for a long time. Dave has stuck true and has followed Dylan in terms of, you know, been at concerts and, and so on. I have not. Then somebody tells me, watch this Rolling Thunder review, which is when Dylan went out when he was in like 74, five, something like that. And he went out with a troop of people, including Joan Baez. And uh, it was quite uh, an amazing event. Johnny and he Mitchell. went, and he went, and Joni Mitchell was there. And, and the guy from the, uh, oh God, Eight Miles High, he sang. Uh, yeah, Roger McGuinn. Roger, Roger, yeah. Um, and Dylan was in white face. He was put a mask on so he felt he could be free if he, if he didn't look like himself. Yeah. Anyhow, that's a whole other thing. This film, um, this, I mean, it's a Scorsese doc, so it's great, right? But the footage that they got, and they got it from some guy from Europe, uh, was, is extraordinary of Dylan singing commitment a presence, charisma, power, the power of the songs, how they came through, I was blown away, totally blown away. So much so, my whole teenagehood was redeemed in one <laughs> two-hour Netflix thing, <laughs> or HBO thing, whatever it was, yeah, Netflix. Maybe. Oh, my God. So everybody out there, take a look at that if you like Dylan. What? He sings Isis at one point. And yeah. um, it's one of my favorite Dylan songs. It's an astonishing song. But the way he did it, if you remember, was like a, a mime. He had a mime makeup on. It wasn't, it was like Marcel Marceau in a way, you know, it was all yeah. white basically. And he did it with movements and with eye movements. And it was beyond words, transcendental. And, you know, I, Dylan said in one interview, he never said much, but he said in one interview that he preferred to carry the bag of Gita around all the time. And that he had it in his pocket, a small one, and read it constantly. And um, you see, this is the thing that a great artist is not just a great artist, he's also an investigator, you know. And I think Dylan his whole life has been an investigator, like a, a detective of truth and of uh, yeah. you know, all kinds of levels, you know. Yeah, I, I have only seen half the film so far, but I did see Ronaldo and Clara when it came out, which is the original version of that, of course, yeah. um, that he did at the time. And Alan Ginsberg was in that. When yeah, that's why I was remembering it, because Alan was so great. He was, he was yeah, beautiful. It's yeah. amazing. You know, I mean, how many artists are involved in changing the level of your awareness and consciousness instantaneously? You know, I mean, it, it happens. Um, it certainly happens. Uh, that level of art is, is, can be considered practice as well, I think, in a way. Yeah. As long as you don't get ridiculous about it and become attached to the person as a person, you know, fan clubs and everything scare the hell out of me because I'm not crazy about people idolizing people, <laughs> it, you know, unless they're masters of time and space. Uh, <laughs> <Masters> <laughs> time and space, yeah. But you're right, Dylan, boy, it's still, yeah. 
you know, that was um, really good. But you know, seventy-eight or seventy-nine. I saw him last year in eighteen. I saw him in seventeen. Mm. Comes to New York every October, and I go to the smallish venue where he not small, right. but right. you know, two thousand people. I mean, it's, it's magnificent last year. So much so that they wouldn't let him off the stage. But he's the kind of guy that won't do any kind of um, you know extra stuff if he hasn't thought about it. Um, I have a Dylan story actually. Okay. Can I tell it? Yeah. I mean, people who started this by listening and wanted to know about Jokey and Minjur and Tulku, uh, maybe just on a walk right now. But um, Dylan, when he performs, he just goes straight off the stage into his van or whatever car is waiting for him. And he's well known for this. He just performs and then walks from the stage to the wings into the car. And a person that I know, uh, who's called Toots Hibbert and has a band called Toots and the Maytals, one of the greatest reggae bands. Uh, Dylan asked him to open for him about six years ago because uh, Dylan was a fan. And Toots did about eight shows with Dylan. So he was told before the first show, whatever you do, don't get offended uh, when Dylan comes off. He won't speak to you. It's just a trance that he's in and he goes straight to the car and then he goes to the hotel. So Mr. Hibbert, don't be offended. I'm sure he'll love your show. So they did the show the very first night and Tootsie was a remarkable performer, amazing actually, uh, finished his set. And then as he was walking up, he noticed that Dylan was staring at him uh, very benevolently. And then as he passed him, he said, incredible. And then Den Dylan did his show. And then when he came off, Toots was very careful not to speak to him or go near him. And instead, Dylan went up to Toots and says, I just can't leave without spending some time with you. So do you mind coming and sitting in my car? And Toots himself told me this, so I know it's true. Yeah. And he did. He spent half an hour with Dylan in the car, with Dylan asking him all kinds of questions about his upbringing and his life. Wow. And it comes to the reggae music that he had and, and his, the influence of Otis Redding and great soul singers and it was just an incredible conversation that Toots had with him and then at some point Dylan said okay gotta go now see you tomorrow night <laughs> the exact opposite of what people had said mm. it was warm and gracious because there was yeah. someone there that he really really turned him on yeah 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 that's great I'm full of celebrity stories tonight <laughs> yeah you are oh <laughs> now what about the you remember the Dead Poets Society? You have your own little Dead Poets thing that you told me about the Zen. I mean, the the Zen koans of. Oh yeah. Master. Oh, where's well, that? It's at the other side of the room. Well, go get it. I'll entertain while you're gone. Okay, okay. I forgot. Jesus, yeah. Really? Yeah, because I I want to I want to hear what that is. It sounded so fast. So Dave told me this is about people who uh, masters, I think they're masters, who on their deathbed, the moment they're, what's it, Japanese death poems, right? Written by monks and their haikus on the verge of death. So yeah, give me an example of what, what the hell anyone says. Of, okay, this is it. I'm just gonna do it randomly because what they're all and, and kind of amazing. And this one's by someone called Ryoto. He died on the 28th day of the fourth month, 1717, at the age of 59. And he wrote, Gaston Ja Sano Atasuki To Oto Degisu, which means, I understand, a cuckoo cries today at dawn. 
<laughs> I opened it randomly. Yeah. Uh, I'll do another one. I understand. <laughs> yes. Um, Joa. Joa died on the second day of the second month, 1785, at the age of 71. And I, I'm not doing this. I didn't, I've not read any of these before. I'll miss out the Japanese. He said, second month, I wear a new bamboo hat and go home. <laughs> I just afterwards. You see the gist of this. Gohei died on the seventh day of the seventh month, 1819. A lone Launia leaf falls through pure autumn air. See, a lot of these it's are like, just... It's like everything slows down to a nothing. It's like yeah. watching slow motion. And I guess when you're in that state, you just... Uh, that reminds me of Aldous Huxley. Uh, Ramdas told me that at the end of his life, and he was taking acid daily, I think, mm -hmm. and uh, Ramdas was with him, he got to the point where he could not really talk but whatever he'd see, he'd just look and he'd go, extraordinary, extraordinary. <laughs> it was all that moment, which is this poem, right? Yes, and, and yes, yes. I mean, they're all kind of like that. The haikus, those are not haikus. The haikus are slightly different. Um, they're, they're, they're more intense. Kasenjo, again, died on the 26th day of the seventh month, 1776. He died when this country became born at the age of 62. It says, depths of cold, unfathomable ocean roar. That's it? <laughs> That's what it boils down that. to. Yeah. Know, I mean, some of them are really funny. Isso died on the 17th day of November, 1899. Cut your price. What if I've gotten 57? The year is nearly over. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, exactly what. And that's what he's supposed to do is, you know. And then here's a nice one by Inseki. He said, I give my name back as I step in this Eden of flowers. Oh, now that's the that's great. Okay, I get that. <laughs> okay, well, that's. I'm just doing it randomly. Right? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, they're I awesome. Know that's the best one that wins. That, well, um, I mean, you know, the 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 lone leaf fly, you know, just slowly <laughs> popping through the air. I think the haikus are actually in a funny kind of way. They're they're different. They're more surprising rather than just based on observations of nature, you know. But I I like the way. This one by Ranseki. This last night of nights, bush clover whispers, Buddha, Buddha. Hmm. <laughs> I like the one I, I give my name back. Yeah, let's uh, yeah, let's get that up on the show notes, everybody. That's fantastic. Now, where else could you possibly hear David Silver reciting death? <laughs> A uh, verge of death poems by Japanese monks from the 16th, 17th century, whatever. Where? Except on mine rolling, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> it's not uh, on Michael Kay's show. <laughs> it's not on Joe Rogan. Not, not even. On Joe Rogan. It might right. be on Duncan Trussell, you know. It, it could be on. <laughs> yeah, it could be on Duncan's show. <laughs> sure. 
So um, you were, I, when we, we, we decided to do this, you brought up the name of William James. Oh, yes. And I wanted you to, you know, sort of expand upon why you brought up William James. I, I only did that because I did a podcast with a, a man named Alistair McIntosh, who uh, is the best person I've ever found who brings together the, the um, social activism and, and spiritual practice. I mean, fantastic. It's to him, it's a hand in hand thing, not one without the other. And he's a wonderful man. He's from Scotland. Anyhow, he introduced, so in this book, he talked about, he talked about William James, who published a pa paper in mind about the inhalation of nitrous oxide. And I thought, and I think I've told you my story of the dentist last year and the nitrous. And I had an ineffable, like 10, 15 minutes of uh, the divine presence in all its different aspects. It was extraordinary experience, right? So I'm thinking, wow, William James, I don't, maybe I studied it in high school or college. I hardly went to college, so I probably can't say that. Um, so uh, <laughs> um, his experiment, he induced an altered state of consciousness, in this case, a mystical uh, experience. Uh, by getting the, uh, his brain got affected by the old nitrous. Now, anybody who's out there who's done nitrous, it's, you get that one, boy. Um, so, uh, and here's a great, I thought it was a great explanation. Rational con consciousness, okay, is but, it's one type. See, we, everything that we think, do, or perspective, whatever, we, we come from a place of rational consciousness it's but he says one just one special type of consciousness all about it parted from it by the flimsiest of screens there is, there lie potential forms of consciousness entirely different that's step one to just realize wow there there is something out there that maybe i should uh, exper you know experiment with it we may go through life without suspecting their existence but apply the requisite stimulus, in his case, nitrous, <laughs> in many of our cases, especially Dave and us and I and others of us is, of course, psychedelics. And that's that kind of experimentation is going on more and more these days. And to um, actually people like Maps and Rick Doblin are, are really working on this from a science basis. Uh, apply the requisite, requisite stimulus and at a touch, they are there in all their completeness. No account of the universe in its totality can be final, which leaves these other forms of consciousness disregarded. So I read that and I went, okay, this guy, he's called the father of psychology, by the way. And he got discredited and all kinds of different things he said. And, you know, it's really, uh, actually really nuts. Where do I have this? I got to read this. I wanted to share with you, Dave. It was really, uh, well, you know, I don't remember reading Variety's Mystical Experience, whatever it's called. Really? Uh, I don't think I did. I think I read some kind of very simplistic version of it. But I know that I had to study Henry James at university. Right. So that's his son or brother or what? His brother, who was a great novelist, but was a novelist in the tradition of the, of the, of the novel of manners. Uh, essentially about, you know, wealthy Americans uh, abroad in, in uh, typically in Florence or Venice, and sometimes uh, at home in New York. And, and, you know, they were all about people's intrigues and ego games and all that. So I was shocked that his brother actually was the complete opposite. 
And then last year, I actually read a novel about Henry James. Don't ask me why. Something really? Jesus. There was a lot in it about his conversations with William. And they were combative. In other words, Henry really had no sense of that mystical consciousness. Mm. Mm -hmm. And William was only interested in that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they used to go to their little house somewhere in New York, I think, at that time, and argue. Totally different people. Mm. William is considered, I think, I, I, I mean, Ramdas will be very interesting on him if he ever chose to talk about it. Yeah. I'm sure uh, that he investigated those books when he was a student. So in this, uh, the the author of this book that I just told you about uh, decided to quote, uh, do you, you know the psychologist Abraham Maslow? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so he had a, a nine um, characteristics present in mystical consciousness. So, you know, everybody listening, um, these really point to the ways in in which these experiences that you can, if you, when, once I read this, you go, wow, okay, that makes sense. I had something like that when I was seven years old, or gee, that happened to me when I was just out looking out over a cliff when I was 18. You know what I mean? Everyone has had these. That's why this is so important. So number one is a sense of undifferentiated unity called the hallmark of the mystical experience, right? Which is the psychedelic ex experience. Basically, all of us that have done that really know that. Undifferentiated unity. We are all totally connected and we are one fabric that binds us. And uh, of course, the masters say that's love and compassion. Number two, objectivity and reality. The experience seems more real than real. How about that one? Remember that? Space and time feel as if their limitations have been transcended. Uh, you know, I often tell people I've gone, I've gone to India many years after Neem Karoli Baba died. There was, uh, he fortunately left us, uh, God, uh, our Indian mother, Siddhima, and I used to go there. Instead of doing retreats, uh, where I go sit and meditate for a few weeks and come out the other end in fairly good shape, I would just go and sit and plug in, and immediately that space-time continuum would be gone in that presence. So, uh, boy, does that feel good. Because first thing that happens, you stop thinking about yourself. Four, sacredness, a sense of which pervades the experience. So uh, that's what happened to me on that nitrous thing uh, last year was just that uh, sacredness, divine present, presence, deeply felt positive moods, joy, blessedness, love. Paradoxicality, normal categories of logic seem to drop away. Wouldn't that be great, right? It is great. Ineffability, the experience cannot adequ adequately be expressed in words. We all know how we've had experience and we can't translate that to even our near and dear ones transiency the intensity of the experience usually passes quickly which is one feature that differentiates differentiates it from psychosis right okay great <laughs> and the last positive changes in attitude or behavior towards life often permanent hey that's a great great list right uh, it was really um much as you can put it into words yeah, as much as you can put it into words and so um so in this uh, paper that I that I took a look at, 
um, there was pushback uh, around mystics and mysticism. This is great. Some do claim there are positive grounds for rejecting the reports of such experiences. Number one, mystics are abnormal. They tend to be sexually repressed. <laughs> like, really? Yeah. Number two, mystical experience is always mixed with other elements such as sexual, emotion, or imagery. Who are these people? I mean, I think they're from the 18th century, so what I think, right? Uh, Descriptions of, of religious experience are in, inadequate to the facts, highly confused, mixed with error and nonsense, subject to change in time. Okay, so this is the pushback uh, to uh, William James and everything he was espousing. Uh, but I, I love these. Uh, that's just fun stuff, everybody. Well, you know what's interesting about that, Roger, is that for me, I should have said just a few days ago, and I won't mention his name because he's not a bad person or anything, but. He did exactly that on me. In what? other words, someone who I met, who's an avowed atheist, uh, just listed a bunch of reasons why anything that I might believe in would be complete rubbish. And there were viewers there, and we all sort of heard it. And the best we could do with it was just say, oh, okay, thank you. Um, you know, move on. Because that kind of thing which says the rational is the only thing we can believe in is exactly what stops us from being essentially happy and interconnected. So I don't care what he had to say. However, it's like that pushback you mentioned. That was back in 18, oh, I would imagine if that's, if James wrote that at his peak, it was probably in the 1860s, something like that, 1870s. And that person wrote that thing then, a typical sort of pamphlet. We'll show this William James lunatic. He's really a pervert. And although this person didn't call me a pervert, what he was essentially saying was that your mind is, 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 is broken. It's broken because you're not understanding that this is, this is errant nonsense and fairy stories. Mm. I didn't want to get into a whole thing about what well, well, you and I have talked about a million times, which is direct experience. Mm. And that I, you know, to deny someone else's direct experience is really oppressive. But it's part of the game, the movie that we're in, that other people haven't had those experiences and therefore don't believe that they could possibly exist. Mm. And obviously your experience with Maharaji and, and, and quite a few others was so powerful that it, 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 it transmogrifies into when he left the planet. Yeah. You know, so that you said, I quote you, that when you were in that situation, time and space just disappeared. And other people who are not nearly as close to it as you are have had that experience by transmission, either by you or someone of those dozens of people, not necessarily saying anything, just being who they are. You know, uh, like our friend Michael, for instance, you know, who is just, he gets darshan from people who've had darshan. And it's not phony, it's very real for him, it's very powerful, and then changed his life. And so you can't really debate the mystical experience, in my opinion. Um, I think it's folly in a way, because you're only going to end up, you know, sort of, well, it becomes a test of your own ability to be detached from someone who absolutely doesn't believe in what you live your life for. And that's, and that's going to happen. You know, people that have these experiences get pushback, like, you know, those crazy things I read, you know, that uh, he himself, William James, got pushback. 
And yeah. you, every, every one of us gets pushback from people who uh, are fearful because these experiences open other dimensions up, which uh, can be very um, nerve wracking for people that are really trying to hold on to that ego identity, hold on to their role. You know, it, it's, uh, it's very challenging for many people. Uh, which is why there's nothing once you and everyone it's not just uh, like our friend Michael who's getting this from people who've been around uh, these great beings it's everyone that's why I love all of these different uh, nine different types of mystical mystical experience because everyone has had one as far as I'm concerned yeah. I mean if you reach back I mean obviously if you've been terribly oppressed you know from babyhood onward maybe it's a difficult uh, karmic predicament. But other than that, uh, you can talk to people and they go, gee, did you ever, when you were a kid, you just sort of went into a kind of spacey thing and you weren't really in your house and you were uh, feeling very wide open, joyful, just for, it happened for like a minute. You were just sitting there. These, that's what that is. And everyone's had that kind of thing. When I, when I first started really meditating, when I went to India and we were in the Himalayas with Ramdas, me, Krishnas, Ramesh and others, um, and we meditated in this great Siddha's uh, cow shed that he had used, you know, a hundred years before, or you know, maybe 70 years before. Um, and that was Harikan Baba. And my first sit in there, I had this, very absorbed meditative experience and in it i realized holy shit i you know because what happened to me part of the experience was i felt like i weighed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pounds. i couldn't move i felt like big boulders were on my in my lap i absolutely i was so heavy and i realized shit when i was about eight or years old or something I had that experience. I realized it in, in, in that moment. I had never thought of it from that time forward. And in that moment, I realized I had that experience. So I, am, I know very well that many of us have had some experience along the line of a mystical experience. And the fact is, we go back to what you were talking about, the bardos in the beginning and the preparation for being able to be non-attached and uh, so that you, you can, we can be open to the transitions that come and many different aspects, some of them are fearful. And to be able to be open is to be able to be detached from the identity with that self, right? Which, and then we talked about emptiness. Well, none of this can happen until you trust that inner, that mystical experience that leads you to connect with the inner true self, true nature, whatever we want to call it. So uh, I, I think honoring the mystical experience that all of us have had, and it's good to even think about that. When did you have one? You know, maybe write it down now if you never wrote it down, something like that. That makes sense? Absolutely. I mean, again, mm. it's practice, a form of practice to recall. Yeah. Call and the, and the the Christian path talks about it talks about it in terms of articles of faith. 
Well, that might have been corrupted. Uh, the word Christian is even corrupted so much these days. But let's talk about mystical Christianity. You know, John of the Cross and those people yeah. believed that you would have an experience um, and, and it would be sacred. And then that experience would resound through your whole life and you would reach back for it. Just reach back and say, oh, I had that experience at that time. And uh, right. those articles of faith, um, it's yeah. an antique expression, but I think they mean that. Yeah. You have something that's so blinding the problem with drugs is that they don't, you know, you don't necessarily remember what experience you have. Whereas when you get them without that. Now, my experience with nitrous was totally benign. Um, in the 19, early 1970s, I had a, a very marvelous dentist on 14th Street in New York. And he would always put me as the last person on a Friday night. And he had gigantic, illimitable tanks of nitrous. <laughs> He and I would sit there mm. for hours mm. and do a big, huge dose of oxygen and then walk out onto 14th Street. We're fine. What I do remember about it is it was benign. It wasn't like some of the sexual experiences I had where there was a great deal of darkness in there and I was frightened as to what I was perceiving or thought I was. With the nitrous, it was just almost like being in some kind of pure land. Mm. Yeah. You know, where what resonated was just the pure joy of being alive. Mm. When you know, our friend Peter Goldsmith and uh, and I went to see Bob Dylan about twenty years ago in Philadelphia, and he was playing at that place called the Barn. I think it's called. It was him and Patti Smith, and we were kind of late. But when we got there in the street that goes to the barn, it's a wide street. We were shocked to find that on both sides there were about ten nitrous oxide tanks on kind of crates. And you would give the guy five. No, whoa. And you'd do a big bunch of nitrous and then go and see Patty, Patty and Bob. I didn't do it because I didn't need nitrous to see Bob Dylan. And I thought maybe oh, I that's so it, great. That he was an ogre or something. So. <laughs> but that was the only time I ever saw it. It was completely illegal and there was no, nobody was stopping it. Mm. I was saying, if you really want to have a good time, do that. Yeah. So that's a little memory. But nitrous but. is. It's very interesting because I don't think it has any harmful effects. It doesn't, they used to say it would kill brain cells. Well, maybe I'm the proof of that. <laughs> I was just about to say I haven't lost any, but I'll take that back. Yeah. Oh, listen, <laughs> let me do say, because you introduced one thing and we're at the end of the podcast, but um, you, the Christian mystics, and, and when we talk about mysticism, we would be, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, some great, great literature is there that really can be helpful. Of course, St. John and Teresa Vila. Um, but we have someone in our uh, satsang, uh, Mirabai Star. So everybody, Mirabai writes beautifully about uh, the Christian mystics and translates uh, uh, Vila and, and so on. Um, and uh, you guys doing the show notes, okay, let's get everybody acquainted with Mirabai's books as, long, uh, as well as uh, the William James uh, varieties of mystical experience and so on. Now, would you have the um, nine, those nine printed with the pocket? I'm going to, yeah, you guys print, yeah, we're, we're definitely going to put those in the, uh, in the show notes or put a link. And, and David's book on the bar, what's the, the book? On, you showed the book, so they'll it's, be able to get it. It's, it's kind of hard to get, but it, one good thing. It's called the Bardo Guidebook by Chokinima Rinpoche. 
and it's really not available anymore in this form, unfortunately. Uh, but it's Kindle. Okay, uh, Kindle for those Kindle nine dollars. Yeah. Kindle. Um, this one cost fifty-five dollars oh. or five hundred dollars. I said. Really? Holy shit! Uh, it's just not doesn't seem to be available. But um, that doesn't matter. You don't need a book. You just need the words. Toku Urgin Rinpoche, Blazing Splendor. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Got the best it. Best title ever. Yeah, you know? the best title ever, ever. ever. Blazing Saddle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> put that in there too. It's my favorite yeah, put movie. That in there. Bad put Bob is in Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I quote him all the time. Oh, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. I had a great here. time. Yeah, all we right. do. It's one thing I look forward to. It's really great. You too. Everybody, this is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network with uh, David Silver and I, and we'll see you next week. Ram Ram.